Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, fellowship. Hi, Chris. Oh, come on now. Um, just a, a quick bit of business here before we get going. If you drive a Dodge pickup with the license plate 311KVM, um, you might want to go move that thing. Um, the police say they are getting ready to ticket you if, if you don't move that. So if you drive a Dodge pickup, all right, all right. Now that we have identified the center, um, no. <laughs> you did? Okay, all right. Co-contributor. Center. Remember that time when you thought that was going to get your little brother off the hook and your mama beat both of y'all? No, mama, I told him to do that. Well, you get it too then. So, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. If this is your first time with us, I want to welcome you here. Today, as I speak, the main passage that we use, you'll see the page number on the screen instead of the scripture. And we do that for a purpose. We want you to see that what we are teaching comes from the scriptures and not just ourselves. And so um, you'll see that those page numbers will correlate to the blue Bibles that are in your seat. If you don't have a Bible of your own, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that is easy to read, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't, uh, if you have a friend or a family member or a neighbor that doesn't have a Bible of their own, then please take that one and give it to them as a gift from the both of us. Um, As we get started this morning, we are in week two of our sermon series, Living Hope. If you didn't get to check out the uh, first uh, message in this series, I I just implore you to go check that out. You can check it out online or through our app um, and get that. And so we just implore you to do that. It'll be a good catch-up, and you can can be with us. Um, This week, we continue on into this letter that uh, Peter wrote. Um, If you're not familiar with it, the Bible is made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, this, our, our focal passage comes from the New Testament. Um, the New Testament starts off with these four books called the Gospels. Uh, and the first three of those books are called the Synoptic Gospel. It's just a, a fancy way of saying that these books contain a lot of the same stories, but from different points of view. From everyone watching the TV, um, that was a pass interference in the Saints game. Um, but from the referee's point of view, it was a legal play. And so um, here we sing the same thing in those first three books. And then you get to John, the Gospel of John, and it just takes off. It's on a whole new level, and it talks about uh, Jesus in a different way than the other books do. And then you go into these, um, you go into the second part of like the Gospel of Luke, which is called Acts. Um, it was written by the same person. And you get into these letters written by this guy named Paul. And then you get into some other epistles or letters um, that were like circular letters, kind of like newspaper um, that was sent out for everybody to read later in there. And we get to Peter. Um, he wrote a couple of letters. And, and this series is focusing on those letters that he wrote. Now, the good thing and the cool thing is, is one of those gospels at the beginning of the New Testament was written by this guy named Mark. Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples, but he was actually a disciple of Peter. 
So a lot of what you find captured in that gospel is actually Peter's account of his times with Jesus. So here we are this morning. We're at the 13th through 19th verse of the book of 1 Peter in that first chapter on page 738. And here's what it says. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better. Uh, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. This is God's word. On December 26th of 2018, there was a 12-year-old boy out with some friends, about six of his friends, to have some fun. They decided to go skiing, and and while they were out, um, the 12-year-old boy got ahead of his friends, and he was swept away by avalanche. The force of the snow dragged him the length of a football field. And so they released helicopters to go retrieve and try to search for him as he was 2,400 meters above sea level. They sent out sniffer dogs and they found him in what was recorded as a miracle. Because the medical official said, normally we never find anyone alive after 15 minutes in an avalanche. But they said uh, he could have prevented all this if his ski jacket would have been equipped with what they call a avalanche detector. But there was another miracle this day after Christmas, they said, that occurred. They said that um, the boy ended up having no injuries, but went to the hospital for just a quick checkup. Now, the boy and his friends had a plan. And the plan was to start at the top of the mountain and then finish at the bottom. The problem is that something disrupted their plan. When the avalanche happened, their immediate actions following the disruption of their plan played a huge role in what made the difference in the outcome. The same can be said for us. The same can be said for us in our lives and in our spiritual journeys. It's like what the great speaker, Mike Tyson, said. Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And I don't know if you've ever been slapped. If you got little kids and they surprise you one morning or something, just slap you across the face, you know that life can sometimes catch you off guard and you feel like the taste buds have been slapped out of your mouth 
and you see those little black flashy things in before your eyes? Right? But here's the deal. If you can regain your composure and refocus on the goal, then you still have hope. But if you can't, then your hope will die. Some of us in this room stand in that very spot. Life has hit us in the mouth, and we don't know if we're still on the right path. We're going through the motions, but the question that begs to be asked is, is our hope still focused in the right place? After the divorce, after the layoff, after your children have been taken, after the diagnosis, is your hope still focused on what gives you life, or will it become focused on what you made your life? As we move into this portion of the letter, um, this is the topic that Peter takes up. He, he writes to his readers uh, on how to resist the urge to lose focus when trouble hits. The recipients of this letter were living in an environment that was not friendly to them, that was not made to them. It was a culture that was not built for their benefit. It would be easy for them to be encumbered with, with the cares of this moment and to feel that taking care of those things were where their focus needed to be put. Some of you can identify with that. Trouble start to hit, and the first thing you think is, what do I have to eliminate to focus all my energy and attention on this problem that I face? Peter understood this temptation, and he was empathetic toward their situation, so he spoke into it. You know, growing up in Dallas, um, in, in the winter, we rarely had any snow at all. And when we did, it was just a light dusting. But I had an elementary school teacher who um, thought it was important to teach us that if we were ever caught in an avalanche, um, that what we needed to do immediately being caught in that avalanche. He said that, you know, most people who get caught in avalanches dig their own grave. The weight and the pressure of the snow confuses them. And so they get discombobulated and confused which way is up and which way is down. And therefore, they think they're digging up, but they're actually digging their own grave and digging down. So he said, the thing that you need to do if you ever get caught in an avalanche is you need to spit. If you spit, the direction your spit travels will let you know which way is up in which way is down. So before you dig, you need to be prepared to know which way to go. And before you get caught in the avalanche, you need to know what you need to do once the avalanche hits. And that's where Peter starts off our passage this morning. Our whole focal passage for this morning hangs on a phrase that is found in verse 13. And that phrase is, put all of your hope in the grace of salvation. Now, Peter knew that living as strangers amongst the natives who saw them as a threat would be hard uh, for their way of life. It would not favor them, and they would encounter some things that made it seem like life had just dumped an avalanche on top of them. They would encounter some things that, as that great down south pontificator Scarface would say, would make it hard for them to smile. And so he said, here's some things that, that could help you in recovering from the avalanche they couldn't prevent the avalanche from happening but they could recover if they remain focused on their goal if they rightly determined which way was up and which way was down 
So he starts off with these two things to help them keep a living hope when life falls on top of them. He starts off with two things that will help them remain focused on the grace of God while living in an environment that disregarded. The first thing he tells them they need to do is to prepare their minds for action. Now, in the New Testament, when you're, when you're studying the scriptures and you're doing this reap thing, one of the things you learn about this New Testament piece is the verbs will lead you to the message. If you're reading in the New Testament, start circling and underlining the verbs in the passage because that will help you discover what the author was trying to communicate as he was writing to the people in that time that were going through real problems and real issues and had real flaws in their life. And so what we see when we get to this first verb of prepare, you need to know this thing about it. Now, I want to let you know that I was an engineer in life, and so this whole English thing missed me. So I had to learn some things, and I had to get in there and struggle with it. But here's some things about this verb. It was a middle voice, aorist tense, plural verb. Now, what, why is that relevant? And I'm going to break that down. Don't get caught up with those words. In the case of the boy in the French... The authorities said that if he had been wearing an avalanche detector, then he could have prevented himself from being in that situation. But here's the thing in life. You can't prevent every mishap, every trouble. Your kid might be born with Down syndrome or some other issue. It's not your fault and there's nothing that you could have done or should have done to prevent it. You can't prevent every bad thing from happening in your life. And every time something bad happens in your life, it's not necessarily your fault or something you did wrong. When the doctor tells you what the case is going to be, then you need to prepare your mind for what it would mean to raise a child in a culture that often values people by what they put out, by what they give rather than whose image they're made in. Being in the aorist tense means that the preparation had to happen in the past. It occurred before they went, before they moved, before they went half on this baby. This preparation occurred before preparing themselves for that action occurred before this thing happened, before they was in the middle of the situation. You had to make up your mind that whoever God blesses us to help bring into this world, we're going to love them and thank God for them. And even if our house get broken into, we're still going to love our neighbors and invest in, in, in deep, intimate, compassion-filled relationships with them. If God is calling you into a community, you have to be resolute that whatever happens, we're going to still love our neighbors and build relationships. We're not going to stone ourselves off or isolate ourselves we're going to dig in with them. God sends you to a church. You're going to have to know that you're going to come across some messy people because you're messy too. And you're going to have to dig in and lean in into those relationships to develop deep relationships. It's in the middle voice, meaning that, yes, you personally play some role, but all the way to preparing um, for what is to come doesn't fall on you. And if it doesn't fall on you, then whom does it fall on? I need you to stick a pin right there because we're going to come back to that thing. But remember about this middle voice thing. And then thirdly, it is plural, meaning that the preparation for the avalanches of life that could kill your faith won't happen alone. 
If it doesn't happen alone, then, then who else is involved? This is another thing I need you to stick a pin in and remember. So we remember this middle voice thing and remember this plural thing because we're going to come back to them. We're going to bring, we're going to bring them together. Now, the next thing that Peter tells this group of readers is that uh, they need to stay focused by exercising self-control. Or in some translations, it, it says to be sober-minded. Now, the thing you need to know about this is, one, a lot of people use this in wrong ways. This verb does not mean to abstain from alcohol. What it means is to refrain from the abuse of alcohol. And it's saying this so that um, you can stay in control of your thought process, so that you always have control of your thought process. Now, when the avalanche of life hits, it's easy for us to look for escapes to act in ways that help us escape or intoxicate our thoughts. Meaning we allow ourselves to get wrapped up in porn and social media and binging on TV and, and, and video games and alcohol and other drugs and shopping and extramarital affairs and even food as a way of escaping our current situation. Whenever trouble hits it, we find it easy to self-medicate through our fixes to boost our spirits. Now this verb is a, a present active plural verb. Meaning it's in the present tense. And if you've been here before, then I've explained that the present tense in the Greek New Testament operates a little bit differently from the present tense in our English language. Meaning when the authors in the New Testament wrote something in the present tense, they mean that it, it, it started, but they had no ending in sight to it. So it was a continual thing that was happening. And then we say it is in an active voice, meaning that the weight of carrying out the action all bared on the people in which they were referring to. And then it's plural, meaning that it wasn't for a singular person, but it was for a group of people. So what does this really mean? It's like as they lived in this place, putting it all together, it was for a group of believers who were living as elect exiles to actively and intentionally take control of their thought process. This was a group action. They needed each other to continually help one another have the right thought process. And as they lived in this place, they were going to continually have to refocus one another's thoughts on the correct thing. They were going to have to continually help one another refocus on the grace of God. They couldn't do it alone. I hope you hear that this morning. There's no way that you're going to be able to keep focus on the grace of God on your own. There is something about being within the body, within the group of other believers who can encourage you and hold you accountable at the same time. This was never meant for you to do alone. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. In the animal kingdom, people who try to do life by their um, self are called something. Dinner. Go watch Animal Planet. That's the strategy of all the animals. They try to pick off somebody and isolate them, and that's the one they take down. If you're refusing to be a part of community, rename yourself Dinner. Because you're setting yourself up for the enemy. So let's step back for a second to that first phrase of preparing your mind. 
We said that it was in the middle voice, meaning that you bear some of the weight, but that some other people bear some of the weight. So the, the second phrase shows that another part of the weight of preparing your mind also weighs on this group of elect exiles that you're a part of or the church that you belong to. But there's someone else who plays a role or a part in it. Let's look at the last part of verse 13. There it says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Now, the English here just doesn't do that phrase that will come to you justice. See, when that 12-year-old boy uh, was calling that avalanche, I can imagine him thinking, if I just hold on, help is coming. Why would he ever believe that? Because he wasn't out there by himself. He had six friends that were out there with him. And so he just had this thought in him. If I can just hold on, I know my friends won't leave me stranded out here abandoned by myself. But help is on the way. When Peter was writing to the readers of this letter, he was telling them the same thing. When life is hitting you like an avalanche, when life is slapping the taste out of your mouth, when you're going through all the troubles and trials of living in this world, the help you need is already on its way. It's like this. If you've ever gone out to dinner to your spot, you know what spot it is, and you order dessert when you order your main course because you already know what you want. And then partway through the main course, the waiter comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, your meal has already been paid for. It makes your food taste a little bit better, don't it? <laughs> but then beside that, even though dessert is not at your table, you already know that you have dessert because dessert has already been paid for and it's on its way. It's already yours. So in, in the same way, the grace of God is ours in the midst of our trials. We might not have its end results of being free from the presence of sin, but it's already ours. We just need to know a couple of things. We just need to know who we are. We need to know that even though life may make us feel like we're trapped, like we have no options, like we want to be dead, that we are free. What do I mean by free? Now, as we try to live life like outsiders, there will be people who knew us when we were insiders. They won't want us to live free lives. They will keep chaining us to our past. They'll keep reminding us of who we used to be and what we used to do. But the scriptures state that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We are free from fear. I know that the enemy wants to make us inactive by telling us that, that you'll do it wrong, that you're not perfect. Who are you to speak into anyone else's life? But the scriptures state that I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We need to know who's riding. We will mess up. We will temporarily lose hope at times. We will become consumed by our problems. And God has placed us in the church not to shame us, but to help encourage us to get back up and keep going. Yes, accountability is a loving 
thing and accountability should be done for the purpose of helping our brothers and sisters refocus on the grace they knew in the past, the grace they're experiencing in the moments of trouble that they're having currently in life, and the grace that awaits them in the future. We need to know what to expect. When we focus our hope on the grace of God, we realize that our role is to reflect God's grace. In order for God's grace and peace to be multiplied, there has to be a need for it. The problem is that we forget that a defined need for God's grace is also an identified presence of sin, hurt, pain, strife, and suffering in our lives. A defined need for peace is also an identified existence for the lack of peace in our world. See, a lot of us, we like the thought of God's grace and peace being multiplied and being abundant in our presence, but we don't like the fact that that means that there's a need for it in our presence. We want to live in graceful situations. We just don't want to live in environments that really need grace. We get the opportunity to reflect God's grace and peace when there's a need for them in our personal lives and in the bodies in which we're a part of. I said this last week, if if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. But if you find one where there's people in need of God's grace and mercy, then join in because they won't mind you being there. And there's room enough for you to receive some of that same grace and peace that they're enjoying. And here's what happens when we start to set our lives and focus on the hope of Christ's return. When we set our hope on the grace of God in the midst of suffering, a couple of things happens. The first one is it enables character transformation. What is it? That enables you to live holy and not slip back. It's not your own strength. It's not your own effort. Here at Fellowship High Christ, we say the only power that we have to change comes from the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the context of the community of God. The words used in verse 14 refer not to an outward conformity change where you just fix some actions or change the way you dress and and wear something a little bit different and attend some church services and carry the big Bible and place it on the back, uh, in your back window of your car. Y'all don't remember that, do you? That's not what this is talking about. It is talking about an inner natural change. And that kind of change doesn't happen on your own. That is a work of the Spirit. And it happens through his word and in the context of the body of Christ. Trying harder won't yield the results that you want to see in your life. Submitting fully to the spirit will help you begin to see the results that you want to see in your life. The next thing that happens when we focus our hope on the grace of God is it enhances relational consistency. When we step across the line of faith, man, we're on fire. Our hearts are burning, and we don't want anything to do with anything that might go against God's word or cause him any sadness. But then, but God is watching, and he can see that over time that zeal fades, right? How many books have you seen out there about how to keep your relationship hot? 
how to keep how to keep the spark in your relationship. And the same thing spiritually, how to respark your spiritual relationship. You don't have the energy to keep the spark in your relationship. You don't have the power. That is a work of the spirit. And sometimes it happens by seeing the spirit at work in the lives of those around you, even when your situation is not changing. Trying harder won't get you where you're trying to go. When you set your hope on grace, it emphasizes positional worth. We're we're on the border of African American History Month. When the founding doctrine or document for this country was drafted, my ancestors were labeled as property and sold based on their output. And even though that has changed legally, we still live in a world that values people often by their output. When you look at how we treat the elderly and disabled, a lot of times we value people by what they give. And that is a hard place to be in because often our culture and our world that we live in isolates people that don't meet the output standard. When we feel like somebody's a little weird, we separate ourselves from them. When they're not the kind of friend that we want to be pictured with, we separate ourselves from them. When they don't think exactly the same way we do, we separate ourselves from them. We place people who don't meet our output standards away from us. But God treats us as his own. He allows us to endure the same trials and sufferings as a reflection of his grace, mercy, and love just like he did with his own son, and he calls us his own. When we focus on the living hope that is found in God's salvation, it helps us to live free when life seems restricting, to embrace his body when the world pushes us away, and to reflect grace while absorbing pain. We won't always be able to avoid the avalanches of life, but we can Choose our attitude by choosing what we'll focus on. Just like the story that I opened with, people around us will wonder how we ever endured and think that it's a miracle that we made it through the things that we're going through in life. Our answer will be similar to the little boys. The troubles of this life may restrict our movement, but they cannot block the work of God's grace in our lives as long as we can breathe deeply of the Holy Spirit. God's divine attitude adjustment is available for all. That is, all who accept his son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. He loves you and he values you. He claims you as his own. It's his grace and mercy that bridges the gap between holy and sin. It is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that makes the bridge for this relationship to happen. You get it by abandoning your own efforts and resting in his. It's Christ's sacrificial work on the cross that keeps us aware of what's really up and what's really down. If you've never trusted 
in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm going to pray in a second. No special words, no special order of words, just a prayer of thanksgiving. And if you've never done that, I, I ask that you would do that this morning, that you would make that decision this morning, that you would surrender your life to him. If you've stepped over the line of faith, ask yourself, are the trials of life helping you to focus better? Or has your vision been blurred from becoming bitter? If you're here and you make the decision to step across the line of faith and follow him, your first step of obedience is baptism. We have clothes for you. We have towels. You can do that today. You don't have to wait to say yes. You don't have to wait to be obedient. We can do that today. Someone after I pray will be waiting for you um, back by the door to help you out with clothes and towels to make that happen. If you're here and you've stepped over the line of faith, truly ask yourself, is your life, is your hope focused on the grace of God? Or on the problems of this life? Is it focused on what gives you life? Or on what you have made your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For knowing that recovery is possible. Knowing that sometimes we're going, to, we're, we're going to get hit by things that we don't expect, a lot harder than we expect, and we're not going to always take them like we would hope. But that your Holy Spirit and your body, that, that you've given those things to us to help us refocus on the grace that's available to us. Father, I pray we would be a people who hang our hope on the grace that is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. If there's someone here today that they came here maybe looking for a, a, a list of to-dos, a couple of things to tighten up a couple of areas of their life just so they can get things better, I, I pray that they would give up on that hope and that they would place their hope solely in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. That today would be the day that they abandon all the self-help and efforts and this truly trust in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. That they would yield their lives to the Holy Spirit. And submit fully to your word. Father, I pray that we would be a people that continually help one another refocus. 
continuously encouraging one another, admonishing one another to follow you. If there's anyone here, Father, that's still struggling, I pray that you would give them life breath and another opportunity to make that decision. If there's anyone here that hadn't gone public in, in their relationship with you through baptism, I pray that today would be the day that the boldness of the Spirit would rise up in their lives and they would say yes. Father, remind us of who we are. Remind us of the gift that you've given us in the church. And remind us that we are here to reflect your grace. We pray these things in our darling son Jesus' name. Amen.